as America's 243rd birthday approaches this week. Um, it's a good time for every one of us to think a little bit about our nation's heritage, about its future. And I want to begin by asking you right off the bat, just these are fairly obvious questions, but indulge me, they're for reasons. Uh, this is a question, is America perfect? No. Uh, did our forefathers practice flawlessly what Christ preached in the Bible teaches? No. But having said that, history records that our nation's founders were God-fearing men and women. Those in leadership and just generally speaking, the populace of our nation because of their expectations of those who are our nation's founders and leaders. For example, on May 17, 1776, history tells us that Congress, Congress actually appointed a day of fasting and prayer for the colonies so that, quote, they might by sincere repentance appease God's righteous displeasure and through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ obtain his pardon and his forgiveness, unquote. Does that sound like anything that comes out of Congress' mouth today? I can't think of a single congressman that that sounds like. Not even one. Thirteen years after that took place, that fa day of fasting and prayer that Congress appointed, uh, when George Washington took his oath of office and was sworn in as the first president of the United States, he added four uncontroversial words to his inauguration ceremony vows at the end. Remember what those words were? So help me God. Those words are in dispute today when people in Congress or various places take their oaths of office, but George Washington added them reflexively without controversy, and his intention was to express the idea publicly that what was promised by him with his vows mattered not just in the moment, but to someone who was eternal and just and righteous and who was watching and would ultimately one day be his judge and the judge of this nation, God himself. That was his intent. After taking his oath of office, history tells us Washington stooped down and kissed his Bible, kissed his Bible as an affirmation of his submissive spirit toward the rule, toward the authority of the almighty God who was the author of this book, the undisputed author of this book in his mind. When that first inauguration was complete, guess what the president and Congress, both houses of Congress, did? Yes, and more. The president and both houses of Congress went en masse from the federal building. They went to church down the street, they walked the street. It was, it was a march to church, all of Congress, still in session. The Reverend Samuel Provost, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, but Samuel Provost, the Episcopal Bishop of New York, presided over a lengthy service that included prayers from Psalms 144 to 150, the sacrament of Holy Communion, with full understanding and explanation of what that was about, Scripture readings from the book of Acts, 1 Kings, and the third book of John, and more. 
all took place in that service. A few years later, John Adams, the second president of the United States, made this assessment and this declaration about our union, about our nation. You've probably heard this quote before, but he says, Our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Most of the quotations, by the way, let me just say, quit right there when you see them publicly. Because a lot of people can read that part and miss the meaning of what, because our, because our education level sometimes in this generation is like fuzzy enough that we, and I don't mean this insult, I'm just a fact. It's just like it's fuzzy enough that we don't always track with what that says. And it's almost as if John Adams knew that even his generation was true. So he goes on, he explains. So let's read the first part and then the second part again. Our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And then listen, for democracy to work, the majority of the people have to be religious and moral at their core, or it what? Falls apart. The second sentence is to explain what he was saying the first time. We don't want to make that too clear in our generation, do we? So let's just stick to the first part. That's the way our culture is now. A few decades later, February 11, 1861, Abraham Lincoln spoke in Springfield, Illinois, and he echoed the general sentiments of our nation's founders this way. He said, in regard to this great book, and he held up his Bible because he had it with him as he was speaking. In regard to this great book, I have but to say it is the best gift God has given to man. All the good the Savior gave to the world was communicated to us through this book. And but for it, we would not know right from wrong. President Abraham Lincoln, 1861. In 1909, President Theodore Roosevelt agreed with his predecessors and stated this. He said, after a week of perplexing problems, it does so rest my soul to come into the house of the Lord and to sing and mean it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He goes on and says, My great joy and great glory in occupying this exalted position as president of the nation is that I am enabled to preach the practical moralities of the Bible to my fellow countrymen and hold up Christ as the hope and savior of the world. 1909, Theodore Roosevelt. I could go on, and some of you know I'm capable, <laughs> quoting many, many more presidents and founders and Supreme Court justices and members of both houses of Congress and on. They were all in total agreement. The most irreligious of our founders would be spiritual giants of our day. But here's my question. If a presidential candidate emerged in 2019 or 20 as either a Democrat or Republican and was quoted as having written or said any of these kinds of things like our past presidents, would he or she have a chance of being elected? Probably not. Regardless of their views on abortion or climate change or the border or the economy or national security or 
They would be skewered by the media, and someone would be offended by what they said. And here's the issue. In our generation, hear this, in our generation, people are more, uh, citizens of America, are more afraid of offending their neighbor than they are of offending God. And I wish that I could say that this was just the average citizen, but the fact is that's true of many Christians. More afraid of offending their neighbor, their employer, than of offending God. Today I want to remind all of us that God does exist, and uh, that's part of why some people have no issue with any of this, because they just kind of... God doesn't exist. This is our forefathers were good people, but they were misguided, naive. So there are some that believe that. By and large, that's not the majority. We know God does exist. We know from Scripture that He cares about nations. And I want to help each of us this morning catch a glimpse from Scripture of how God relates to nations, particularly nations who are unconcerned about offending Him. Now, let me just say, if today you're looking for a this-is-your-best-life-now kind of message, um, probably not today, okay? And, and that's not because it, it, that's unimportant. I don't want to convey that idea. It's just that the 243rd birthday of America is at hand. And it's important that we as God's people pause and think about our heritage and our future. Because wisdom dictates humility before a holy and righteous God dictates that we take things seriously of this sort. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And there is a silver lining to it all, so I'll give you that right out of the chute so you can hang on. Okay? But... Uh, my goal this morning, my hope, is that this message will inspire you to pray for our nation this week. My hope is that this message will, will help you to humbly seek God's mercy on its behalf. Um, if that was necessary in 1776 by the order of Congress, it's certainly necessary in 2019 by virtue of what Scripture tells us. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open it to the book of Judges, chapter 2. You're not going to hear just a lot of my conjecture. You're going to see what Scripture does have to say about this. If you have your Bible, open it with me to uh, the book of Judges, chapter 2. And before we read a portion of the passage together, let me just give you the setting for this particular passage. Israel had conquered most of the promised land. Joshua, who was their, their fearless leader, he, uh, a man of God, walked with God. Uh, just as Moses, his, uh, uh, his forefather, had done. And Moses, uh, Joshua, Moses was now gone. Joshua was aging. And so Joshua gathered the people of Israel together. He renewed their covenant relationship with the Lord. And the Bible goes on, with that context, the Bible goes on in jo uh, Judges 2, verses 6, to say this, tell us this, that after Joshua sent the people away, each of the tribes left to take possession of the land allotted to them. And the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua 
and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done in Israel, for Israel. Skip down to verse 10. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. Yeah, just pause. They didn't acknowledge him and they didn't remember. Why did they not remember? Apparently because it wasn't talked about enough, right? We could talk more about that. I won't get off on a tangent. Verse 11. Sorry. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. They made the Lord, or this made the Lord, burn with anger against Israel, so he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. And every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned. Let's just pause. Was this a surprise to the people? They probably didn't remember, but God had warned them. It goes on the last part of that verse to just say, and the people were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. Let me just pause. Was God bothered by the fact that all these horrible things were going on? Yes. It grieved him deeply. He was burdened by that. But verse 19 says, But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And let's just pause right there. And that's as much of the passage we're going to deal with today because it just goes on. But these verses concisely describe a dark period of Israel's history. During the period of the judges, and that's how it's referred to in uh, biblical studies and so forth, during the period of the judges, the people of Israel were unconcerned about God. They were preoccupied with the pursuit of lesser gods, lesser priorities, other pursuits. And with these verses in mind, what I want to do for the next few minutes, because this is describing not just an incident, but this is, just, this is a summary of the book of Judges. The whole book described right here. Because what you see going on in the book of Judges as you read the whole book is... Verse chapter 2, it just happens over and over and over again. Only think of it as a downward spiral. It's like, the, it's like as the text says, uh, when the judge died that God had blessed, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before him. So it was a downward spiral that was taking place here. And so with that in mind, I, what I want to do with these verses in mind is make a few quick observations about how God and nations 
relate to one another, hear me, in ancient and modern times. Now, how could I say that? Because the scriptures teach us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? What he did then, he could do today. He may choose to do something different, but his nature is the same. He is not fickle like you and me. He's consistent. So as we work our way through these verses, I hope you'll listen carefully to what we can all learn from the elder brother of all nations. What is the elder brother of all nations, you say? What's, what's that all about? Let me, let me think, of it, think of it this way. What do wise younger brothers and sisters do when their older sibling is disciplined by dad or mom? What do you do? If you're smart, younger son or daughter, you go, whoop, not going to do that. Right? That, that didn't work out for them so well. Right? That's what a younger brother or sister does. If they're humble and wise, humble and wise. And so uh, for the next few minutes, let's make a few quick observations for the humble and wise among our nation uh, from the nation of Israel about how God and nations relate to one another from judges. First observation, God relates to nations according to their spiritual climate. If you want to use your insert, your handout this morning, you can jot these down. This is worth remembering. Because it's not like you're going to just find this everywhere. Because there's not a lot of sermons going on in our nation about this kind of thing. But God relates to nations according to their spiritual climate. You see this over and over in Scripture. And spiritual climate change, as we see in the text, can happen fast, Right? Look at verse 10 again, if you've got your Bible open or follow it on the screen. After that, generation died. So what's that telling us? Another generation raised up. In a generation, they went from obeying and following God to neglect, disobedience, evil, prostituting themselves to, to others. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors. The passage is just saying that a lot can be lost in a generation, and that's true in ancient and modern times, because mankind's natural tendency is to forget I'm in my mid-50s. I'm forgetting things on occasion. Does that happen to any of you? you ever, did you find that? I mean, I, there are things about occasionally Lori will ask me something of our early days of marriage. I never forget those things because <laughs> there's a price to pay. No, that's not true. But you know, we, we just have a natural inclination to forget things. That's what happens as we age and generationally speaking, that's individually, but generationally it's true as well because we just assume the next generation understands these things. We say it once and we assume they've got it and it just doesn't work that way. In a generation, Israel forgot that God had rescued them from slavery. They forgot that God had parted the Red Sea. They forgot that God had provided manna and quail and water for 40 years, you know, for near a couple million people in the desert, Saudi, the Saudi desert, they, they just forgot all of that kind of thing. 
They forgot that God had delivered them from oppressive kings and abject poverty and plagues and more. And because God had blessed them with freedom and health and wealth and growing families and more, they were just sort of living happy. Just like them, our nation has forgotten a lot too. Our nation has forgotten how many times God rescued us from certain destruction in history. And God has blessed us with homes and cars and clothes and health care and wealth and freedoms that our ancestors honestly could never have imagined. The average one of us lives in a fashion that a king of ancient times could not have comprehended and would have given you know, his servants right arms in order to live that way. They just would have, like we do. But like ancient Israel, our generation is increasingly preoccupied with lesser gods. We're forgetful of the mighty things God did to establish this nation, and we're willingly doing evil in the Lord's sight and ignoring him. In the public arena, and increasingly in private settings, too. Which brings us to a second observation from this passage that we need to make, we must understand, we must take seriously, and that is that God relates to nations according to a predictable pattern. This is not... It's not something that can't be understood if we just look at Scripture. And I'm going to take you through this passage, but we could go through other passages that illustrate the same kind of thing. God relates to nations with a predictable pattern, particularly those who are preoccupied with things other than him. When God's kindness and mercy and grace are rejected or selfishly selfishly taken for granted by individuals or nations, for a time he will patiently endure because he knows that we're mortal, he knows that we're flesh and blood, that we're dust. He He knows that we're at best children. He knows that. But if the situation remains uncorrected, like any parent of a selfish, narcissistic child, God will eventually become offended and angry and determine that something will be done about this. And he will initiate corrective action. Unlike our generation, he is not opposed to discipline. He's not. The fact that it's painful serves a purpose, getting our attention, hopefully leading to a change of behavior and attitude. That's his objective. Judges 2 illustrates God's predictable pattern of discipline correction for nations. You look at verse 14, it says this, This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel, so he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned. And the people were in great distress. Now, maybe you heard me read it, and you could see certain things, but let me just... Spotlight the pattern here. 
when willful national ongoing sin is engaged in, here's the predictable cyclical pattern that follows. God gets angry. That's the first part. We don't like to think in our generation of an angry God because we can't control an angry God. That's why we don't like it. Just like a kid doesn't like it when mom or dad get angry. It's a nature, but God gets angry. Why does he get angry? Is it because he's just mean? No, he gets angry because he loves so much. If he didn't love so much, he wouldn't bother with you or me. That's the bottom line. He cares too much about you, about me. He has sacrificed more for us than we can even begin to comprehend. And one so great and virtuous and good as him who deserves our full devotion, who we don't even exist if it weren't for him, deserves that we, like, acknowledge him on occasion and admit that, like, maybe he's smarter than us. And just, like, humble ourselves on occasion before him. And when we don't do that, Basically, what happens in the Spirit of God is this. Okay, if you don't want me, I will allow you to be overseen by the one who really, really, really wants to control you and oversee you. And it just happens to be one whose primary objective is to steal, kill, and destroy. Are you with me? Are, are you with me? You track it with me? I know you don't like it. I get it. I don't like it. But this is just, this is, I'm trying to help you understand what's going on behind the scenes. You and I must understand this if we're going to understand the times in which we live. So God just steps back and he allows the one whose motivation is to steal, kill, and destroy to begin to oversee national events and organizations companies, etc., economy. Eventually, what happens is, second thing, after God, you know, you deal with God getting angry, then eventually the people's possessions begin to be taken from them. They're stolen. Maybe they're taken through unjust taxation or, or legislation or various other means. All potentially legal, just not necessarily wise or fair. There's threats of that going on all the time in our country right now. Next thing that happens is if that continues, if nothing changes, enemies begin to rise up and begin to torment and prevail against that nation. They can no longer resist them before they were able to with God's oversight. But without his oversight, you can't resist them because they've got the inside edge on everything. And if there's no repentance, the nation starts to lose Military confrontations on a larger scale. Societal distress escalates. Throughout ancient and modern history, God has gotten the attention of, you hear this, his own people Israel and every other nation on the planet in this way. Which brings us to a third observation from this passage about how God 
and nations relate to one another. The third observation is God relates to nations according to their leaders. Their leaders. Much could be said about that. We just don't have time to, to camp on this. But both for good and bad, God relates to the nation on the basis of their leaders. Sometimes we look at it and we say, oh, it's, it's only bad. But the text shows us an instance where this is good. Judges 2.16 tells us that then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the people from their attackers. Now, let me just pause right here. Some of you are thinking, judges, what, what's it talking about? These judges don't, uh, don't sit, didn't in ancient times sit in courtrooms like we think of judges. This is not the way it worked. These judges were national, political, and military leaders. They were not always known for their virtue. Think Samson, okay? Go read Judges 15. Read about Samson. I mean, he was, he was a whack job, kind of. I mean, he really was. I mean, he was... But uh, you just go, how does this happen? But you read the book of Judges, and there's a lot of that happening, going on. A lot of, how does this happen? You know, the, when the theme of the book often ends up being everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We had time to explore the whole book. That was the, that's sort of the underlying theme of this period of the Judges. Everyone doing what was right in his or her, her own eyes. Well, that, that's like where we live, Right? Well, what God did was he would raise up a judge. They were not always known for their virtue, but they always created a window of opportunity for the people at large to humble themselves before God and repent of their spiritual neglect in hopes, from God's perspective, in raising them up, that things could become different going forward. Judges 2.18 adds, that whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. Think throughout the time of the judge's influence. That's how you have to think about it. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. And I'll just add, even though it was of their own choosing. It's no different than, you know, you got a son or a daughter who makes some stupid decisions and you... You take a hard line with them to deal with the situation. And do you as a parent suddenly, every, when bad things start to happen, are you like celebrating? No, no. In your gut, you're just like, ugh, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. Is, this is where God is with his people, the nations. And remember Jesus, when he died on the cross, he purchased all of us, all of us, no exceptions. Well, this situation brings us to a fourth observation about how God and nations relate to one another that shows up in this passage. God doesn't just relate to their, to their leaders. God relates to nations according to the people's repentance or lack thereof. He relates to us on the basis of repentance or our lack of repentance. God's hope in ancient and modern times has always been for people and nations to humble themselves and to honor him for the kindness and mercy that he's shown them. To recognize that he is a good and gracious leader. That he's the one who's the master at bringing good out of bad. That he's the one who, who cares about the widow, the orphan, the stranger and alien among us. He's the one who challenges us to love our neighbor as ourselves. That these things do not flow naturally out of humanity. They flow from his wisdom and his expectations 
And when he's, his standards are held high as his standards, those things become a natural byproduct of how we live because we understand that we're living according to his standards. This is, this is how he thinks and how it operates. What we see during the period of the judges in ancient Israel is that that didn't happen. Judges 2 tells us that repeatedly, verse 19, when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways. Behaving worse than those who had lived before them, they went after other gods, serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And if you've read the book... You know that that kind of behavior for Israel didn't work out so well for them. God's not a permissive parent. And God wants us to understand that if we will learn from Israel's experiences, things can end better for our nation. It can end better for any nation, any person who will listen to him. That's one of the primary reasons that God says this in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 14. And I'm almost done, just so you know. Yeah, as I know, some of you are going, ah! <laughs> I told you I could go on, but I'm not going to. I'm, I'm almost done. It's one of the primary reasons that God says in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, what's he say? Then I will hear from heaven. We've already sung about that. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Where rifts that seem to be uncrossable exist, God can heal those. But only God can do that. As America's 243rd birthday approaches this week, I want to caution you against concluding that our nation's primary problems are rooted in the media or Congress or President Trump. It's a very naive, short-sighted, non-spiritual, secular view of the world in which we live. Our nation's great need is for all of God's people nationwide to humble themselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from their wicked ways because then God will hear from heaven, forgive our sins, and heal our land. It's the path to healing, the path to help from heaven for ourselves and our nation. So this morning as we close the service, I want to lead us in a brief prayer time for America is what I want to do. And uh, the way I'm going to do that is uh, I, I'm going to use a prayer that Abraham Lincoln offered in 1863. Uh, he offered it at a pivotal point in our nation's history. I'm going to read for you and offer to God the exact prayer that he prayed 156 years ago. And as an expression of humility for all of us this morning, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to kneel with me as I pray. If you, wanna, if you can't do that physically, that's okay. Don't feel bad. But if you... If you can and will, I'm going to invite you to kneel with me. And when I finish, our service will be done today, okay? Let's, let's kneel and pray for our nation. Oh, Lord, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. 
We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity as a nation. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten you, O Lord. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. We're too proud to pray to the God who made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Lord, here in 2019, would you hear our prayers? Would you forgive our nation's many sins and our many sins as individuals? And in your mercy, would you heal our land? Would you make America all that you dream of it being? We thank you for this nation. And together, Lord, little group that we are, we lift this prayer to you today, this week, and in the coming months and years. In the powerful name of our Savior and Lord and coming King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Bless you all.